But I think that NFTs are two, they're two things. They can be a new medium, but they also can just be a new channel of distribution. And every artist can, you know, choose how to use them. So far, photographers are mostly using that, using it as a new channel of distribution because they're minting work that they've already made as a photo. And now they're making it as an NFT. What I'm actually really interested in is to see how it affects the work that's made moving forward when people are making it, knowing that that's the, the format. Hello, this is Bill Bowling with Documentum, um, brought to you by Fall Line Press. We're really excited today. You were just listening to Clea McKenna. Uh, Clea is a visual artist uh, working in photography. Uh, she is uh, based in the uh, Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and she has been collected by SF MoMA, Getty. She's in numerous public uh, collections and is a fantastic artist. She recently um, chose to move a couple of her collections into an NFT space. And she's talking with us today about that journey, what that experience was like, and it is a fantastic uh, listen to have first a first-hand report from someone who is so um, knowledgeable and um, sincere and thoughtful about it. Here's Clea McKenna. It's such a thrill to get to meet you, Clea, and to be able to share your story with listeners and, and for me to get to hear your story. So thank you for being with us. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I am uh, already a huge fan, uh, and I'm just really beginning to unearth all that you have produced in your career. It seems like you must have been doing this for 30 years, and you haven't been doing it for 30 years. So let me start with this question. Um, how did you become, and obviously you work, you write, you do short films, you work in many media, but how did you become focused on photography? How did that happen? Yeah, Um I always was focused on photography. The splintering of my practice into some other mediums is a relatively recent development. Um, but photography has been my primary medium for ever. Um, <laughs> I got into it when I was about like 12 or 13 and I was a dancer um, and you know, pretty dedicated to being a dancer. And, but you know, there's kind of a lot, I mean, that's not an easy path either. <laughs> and, um, and I was good at it, but I wasn't gifted, you know? And around when I was 12 or 13, my mom's friend was a artist, a working artist and a photographer. And so this was in like 1992 or something. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if people remember these things, but um, Polaroid transfers, Oh yeah. Oh, that was a, th that was a big thing back yeah, then. Yeah, it was a thing. Yeah. I moment. did those things. I loved them. <laughs> yeah. Where you would put a slide, like mm -hmm. an old school transparency slide into mm -hmm. this little machine and it would yep. print it out a Vivitar machine. It would yeah. print it out as a so my mom's friend was into doing those and I don't remember why exactly, but I went over to her house, to her studio, which was like underneath her house mm -hmm. and just kind of tried my hand at it and fell in love mm -hmm. with it. And so then I started, you know, I went over for a few kind of like private hangouts with her where she taught me how to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I started seeking out dark rooms at, you know, at my high school, once I was in mm -hmm. high school at the junior college nearby. And I just, it kind of took over. And mm -hmm. so I'm one of the rare cases of someone who's never really like changed paths entirely. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's what I got my undergrad degree in, it's what I got my graduate degree in. Meanwhile, I did other things a little bit here and there and worked all kinds of jobs, but that was always my focus. And then it shifted to cameraless photography and photograms really about um, 14 years ago, 13 mm -hmm. years ago maybe. And it's been right. almost exclusively cameraless photography for the last maybe 13 years. Wow. Yeah. What a, what a journey, right? From, from those Polaroid transfers to all of the things that you're doing now. Um, yeah, and you can see how Polaroid transfers, even though they, you know, the image originates from an image shot on film, it, there's a kind of hands-on like malleability about it. That's akin to photograms and the kind of experimental photography that I work with. So I, w I was going to ask you about that because it is cl very clear the your opening page on your website with the veil and lace. Right. And I mean, that could almost be a, a, a Polaroid transfer, right? There was a veil when you would peel that off and, and, pl and place it down. It felt very painterly and, mm -hmm. and veil like uh, mm -hmm. and experimental. And mm -hmm. that seems to be an important theme in your photography as I as I'm looking at it. I was going to ask you also this question. Um, we're going to talk some today, um, all, uh, not just about your photography and art practice, but also about your recent uh, choice to uh, mint uh, NFTs and have that as an element of your 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 expression. But before we get there, I, I'm, I'm very curious how you you think about the journey that you're on with your with your photography, not just going all the way back to 12 and then through art school and then continuing, because many people drop out of photography after art school, those second jobs that we all as artists take to pay the bills, um, sometimes grinds us up or pulls us away. I know it did for me for many years and for both, frankly, for probably most artists end up losing losing the thread. So how, how did that journey go for you and how did you keep, despite everything keep that moving forward what was your process for staying in the in the groove yeah well so i did my undergrad in photography and then i there was about six years or so in there before i went to graduate school so i didn't go straight through um and in that time i definitely you know, wavered. I wasn't like in the, in that six year period, I wasn't like actively working all the time. However, at that time I was still like taking photographs with a camera in a more documentary style. And so there's a way in which you can kind of do that, like different than other mediums. There's a way in which that kind of photography can kind of just intertwine with daily life. You know, you don't even necessarily need a studio or whatever, as long as you're still taking images, you're still kind of exercising those like aesthetic skills, mm -hmm. you know? So, and a lot of that time I was living in Europe and different places abroad and I wasn't really making art, but I mm -hmm. was thinking about mm -hmm. it yeah. <laughs> and yeah. working just a lot, yeah. working as yeah. a bartender or yeah. community or whatever. Yeah. Well, you hesitate. I, I want to stop just quickly and say you hesitated because you're thinking you really were making art. And we don't like yeah. to say that. But in a way, sometimes those periods where you may not be productively show, having things to show, it doesn't mean that you're not, things aren't uh, percolating. Yeah. I also think I was in an active, like, loss of identity during a mm -hmm. lot of, like, loss of identity in, because I wasn't making art, but finding my identity because, you know, I was 23, 24 in that right. age where you're figuring yeah. out who you are. Right, right. Um, but I do think that I got, 
because I wasn't making art actively, there are other ways in which I got a little bit lost, you know? Yeah, right. And then I eventually moved back to the U.S. and and dove back into my own art practice, but also worked in, you know, I was working in like random retail jobs and whatnot. And then at some point I was like, okay, I... Oh, I know what happened. I applied to graduate school and I didn't really get in. I applied to mm -hmm. a bunch of schools and I got into like a few kind of like post-grad programs and schools I didn't want to go to, but I didn't really get into like the programs I wanted. And so then I was like, oh, okay, I am going to take this seriously now. I'm more stabilized. I'm back in the U.S. and I'm going to stop working at jobs that don't have to do with photography. I'm only going to work at, even if they're crappy photo jobs, I'm only going to work at like photo industry jobs. And meanwhile, I was actually working on a very long documentary project over a period of many years with this family in Mexico that sort of become my adopted family. And so that was, so I was making work during that time. But anyways, I kind of buckled down for another year or two there and really focused and built up my, you know, published a little, built up my kind of resume and then reapplied to graduate school and got into a whole bunch of schools. So that was when I like turned toward like taking myself seriously as an artist. Right. And, um, and yeah, and then I went to graduate school at CCA and in the Bay Area here and then afterwards, I mean, what you said about like a lot of people kind of, you know, drop out gradually because of just the realities of life. I, yeah, I totally feel that. I totally see that. And that was, it was really, I mean, that's where the rubber hits the road kind of. Right. Like how right. dedicated are you? Right. Right. And also in a lot of cases, just how much resources do you have? You know, right. and most right. people who continue come from some level of privilege. Right. Um, Either create the privilege, they get fortunate to have the privilege, or they just have the privilege. And, yeah, or they marry uh, someone with money. Right, right, like that right, 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 <laughs> um, right. But I, I didn't have really those circumstances. I worked as a wedding photographer for years during that right. time and through graduate right. school to pay right. the bills. And, and then I started this online arts magazine called In the Make with a friend. Mm -hmm. And we published studio visits with West Coast artists for four or five years we did that. We published about 120 studio visits and I was the photographer for that. So I was working other jobs, but at least, and then I taught for three years at, at UC Davis and at CCA. So I was working other jobs, but they were art related jobs. But yeah, I just, I was very conscious of the kind of like last man standing concept that like, there's a lot of qualities that make success more likely, but one of the big ones is that you just stick with it. And a lot of the qualities that, will make you successful, I intrinsically didn't have, you know, in that like, I didn't have that kind of privilege. I didn't have the money to pay the bills. I didn't have connections in the art world, but I did have like perseverance, you know? So I was like, okay, I gotta utilize what I have. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I really pushed through sticking with it, you know? And I did, and I did have a partner who we mentioned this on our phone call, but I think this is actually really important for young artists to understand that I had a partner who, um, have still, <laughs> a partner who is not an artist, um, but he actually is one of these people who believes in the importance of art, which I think is fairly rare for non-artists. And so he never pressured me to like, just go get a normal job. And I think that 
you know, there's so much self-doubt already, like in ourselves as artists and trying to trying to survive financially doing that, that if you also have the closest people in your life telling you like, oh, when are you just going to buckle down and get a job, which I know a lot of people's parents tell them, you really want to like surround yourself with people who aren't going to push you that way, but who are going to believe in, in what you do. And so he's, he's a true believer. And so that has helped me kind of stay the course, I think. That is so great. And I, I, uh, that story is so needed, uh, for young artists or artists uh, of every age and at every place to, and it's so generous of you to share that story about how you stayed the course and how, of course, now you're collected by museums and, uh, you have a lot of patrons of all, all stripes and you are, you know, by every measure, successful, uh, important, uh, photographer and artist and congratulations on making all that happen thank you i think not to like focus on money too much but because it relates to the nft thing i think that one of the illusions and one of the things that's kind of confusing in the art world is that you can be you can appear very successful from the outside and it does not necessarily translate into income mm. and to me that's becoming as you you know that doesn't matter to you when you're 25 30 but as you get older and you have kids to pay for and whatnot it starts to be a real reality that like huh like i'm getting all these opportunities i'm having the kind of shows i want to have and yet i'm still like really struggling to make ends meet and i think that's a structural problem with the art world which is part of what the nft situation right now is kind of addressing mm -hmm. um but yeah i feel i mean i feel super lucky for all the opportunities i've had and and i also think that in the last seven years maybe my relationship to my own practice has become really different like prior to that which seven years ago i had a kid so that was a big shift like everything in my life is like you know, before kid and after kid, because everything changes. <laughs> um, but I think that like the idea that I ever wavered or wasn't sure if I was dedicated enough or whatever, completely changed after I had a kid because then the level of obstacles is so much greater. And yet it what it did was it actually turned me even more towards my art practice and made me even more focused. And that to me, was a real like sign that I was like, oh, this is just, I just have to do this. Like, this is just okay. the way I exist. It's not a choice. It's, it's like survival, you know, and psychological survival. And so I think my, because of that, like my faith in my own kind of creative source really changed, even though there's less hours in the day, there's less time, there's less money, all the things like there's so much more, um, trust in this being just like who I am and what my path is. So, yeah. Um, trust in who you are, what your path is, a sense that you could not be who you are unless you included this uh, art practice in your life. And that's a discovery that takes a long time to make. And it's interesting to me, I had three children or have three children and I had um, a similar experience that with is with you when you have a child you say well gosh i guess i can do anything <laughs> especially if you're the mother that births the child you go oh okay i guess i can do anything i guess i can have it all yeah it's true it's super 
it's the weirdest thing because it's super empowering and simultaneously just came with a lot of self-doubt also. I had postpartum depression after my first kid and I went through a year of just, I mean, the way that manifested was just absolutely destroyed my confidence, which of course like lack of confidence is the enemy of creativity, right? It's completely right. necessary to be able so to true. create without like doubting the creation as you're making it. And so I went through a year after she was born of, I, I didn't get like properly diagnosed and treated until 10 months after she was born. And so for those 10 months, it was so rough in so many ways, but the creative process was really rough. And I, I went through so many rounds of like starting an idea, getting excited about it. And then it would sort of like wither on the vine the moment I would reach for it or the moment I would start actually executing it. Um, but then what was interesting is once I kind of recovered from that and got the help I needed and stabilized, my confidence came back and it came back like way stronger than it had ever even been before. Mm -hmm. And that has maintained now for seven years. And I don't know how to explain that. I mean, I, I um, have recently learned about the term post-traumatic growth, which is kind of a, a positive side effect of, you know, post-traumatic stress and whatnot. But um it's interesting because I've witnessed it also in some other moms as well, this kind of dip and then recovery that then really propels you even more than you ever were before. Um, something I'm still trying to figure out and would love to do some writing about at some point. But for me, it's working. Now I have another kid also. I have a seven-year-old and a two-year-old and I've had some very productive years. <laughs> wow. I think that's so great that you're sharing this. And um, I think a lot of people are uh, waking up to the special nature of the journey that a, a woman uh, photographer or woman artist, writer, makes. I, I, I wish I could claim that I'd always really been sensitive to and understood that. And, and I don't, I'm sure I still don't understand it fully, but just hearing your voice about that uh, is uh, really great because I don't think we get to hear um, successful artists uh, opening up enough about, um, about, uh, about that. And thank you for being open about that. I think yeah. that will, that will, that that's an important message for everybody to hear. You know, it's really common. I mean, I don't mean to be like a public service announcement, no. but it's really common and really underdiagnosed because even me, and I think of myself as like a fairly like vigilant and educated person about mental health, but um, the kind of headlines you see about postpartum depression are these horrific things right of women like killing their babies or abandoning their babies or things like that and that is just like one possible symptom out of like 20 different symptoms and not everyone has all the symptoms so because it wasn't dire like that I couldn't really get anyone to notice like I kept trying to kind of raise the red flag and everyone around me was like oh you're just tired and I you know I was not just tired <laughs> right so I think it's I think it's just really important to know yeah it's really right. common. I think the statistic right. is something like one in five women have it right. so like chances are someone you know has it you know um and one of the positives also that came out of that for me was just learning how to find more support as a woman artist and an artist mom and so a friend and i started a uh, a critique group that's kind of a large and ever-changing 
critique group here in San Francisco, specifically for working artists who are also moms of young kids. And there's about 25 members and they kind of drift in and out, but we meet once a month and do these in-depth critiques of each other's work. And it operates both as a as a forum for real critique, but also as a kind of support group around the issues that come up of being an artist mom. So yeah, seeking out that kind of support or, or making it if you can't find it um, has been important too. That's fantastic. And uh, man, I, the, you, you've opened up so many things. We uh, obviously Documentum TV and volume two, we call it, is examining the whole purpose of our conversations in the podcast is to examine how uh, from different perspectives. We had Kim, Kim Beal, you know, from Stanford was uh, on our first podcast looking at NFTs from a historical perspective. Uh, um, and we're here in conversation with you because of how NFTs have become part of, you know, the way that you are uh, growing your photography and to have the opportunity to get to know you better and to see all of that as we start, as we're about to do talking about NFTs is so great um, to have that context and to know, um, you know, your work is online. We can always see your work, but to get the opportunity in your own voice to hear what your journey has been is so so rewarding so thank you yeah, thanks um, for giving me a chance well let's think about uh you know the the way um that you've introduced nfts is just the perfect way because i think from a photographer's standpoint and i talk to a lot of photographers about well are you going to do an nft you've done an nft you're not going to do an nft you love nfts you hate nfts you hope you never hear the, the that acronym ever again and it's just, just such a right now at this moment in time there's such a wide range of thoughts and attitudes and opinions and nfts particularly photography as a form as an as some as a medium that is expressed as a non-fungible token is pretty much brand spanking new yeah. And so you're, you're out there and, you know, the way you framed it was, you know, you were interested in it as possible way of having a, a livelihood, you know, a extending and growing mm -hmm. your livelihood, a real livelihood that can support children and college tuition and yeah. all of that. And that was also something that Kim was focused on. So maybe we start there. So what was it like for you to be considering NFTs and then saying, well, okay, I think this is something I would like to do. Tell, tell us how you got there. Yeah, well, it took the form of a year of listening to my husband talk about crypto and <laughs> NFTs and totally shutting him down and just being like, don't talk to me about this anymore. Like, I don't want to hear about it. I'm not interested, you know. Leave me alone. <laughs> leave me alone. Yeah, and also, like, could we just, like, I don't know. It was interesting now in retrospect, I can see it wasn't just that I like wasn't interested. It was like actively resisting. And what I can see now looking back is that it wasn't really about NFTs at all. It was just about, um, you know, this, this kind of technological future that is coming. AI and all these different things is so daunting for an analog person who's, you know, old enough to not feel native to that stuff. And it, I think it was just alienation. I felt 
afraid that that future was coming really fast and that there was no place in it for me or for my values. And also as a parent, you're always afraid about the future not being what you envisioned for your children. You know, that adds a another layer of anxiety kind of. And so now I can see like, I just was, I just was afraid of it. And I didn't think I could fit into it. I didn't think I could adapt quickly enough to be part of it. Whenever he would talk about this kind of stuff, my thought process actually was like, I hope this doesn't become mainstream until after I'm dead. Right. Like kind of like, can I just get by Avoid, the way I'm used right. to living before this becomes right. a thing? <laughs> I, that's such a common thought. Yeah. I mean, every time there's a new technology, that's my thought. My first yeah. thought, really? Do I have to learn this now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that was how I felt. <sighs> and then, but he was pushing and pushing and pushing. And he's he's not a tech guy. He runs a, he co-founded a um, sustainable furniture business here in San Francisco that makes wooden furniture. So very much not tech, cool. but he's smart and he has a kind of math brain and he's very tuned into economics and it's just like how he thinks. Mm -hmm. And so he was really like watching my, my community, my art community and saying like, look, this is an opportunity for you guys to get in early and kind of build something. And you guys are going to miss this opportunity if you don't pay attention. And then simultaneously, so this is all kind of like last year, and then simultaneously, my art community started to kind of react as it started to happen, right? And I was just seeing so much um, really intense, like, anger <laughs> from the art world about this, you know, and just posts and rants about everything on social media. And it was so polarizing that it made me kind of curious about it you know like well if it's this important to these like why are these why do these people care so much and if it's that important to them even if they're against it, it it's like it must mean something right right and so also just my natural kind of tendency to like want to do the opposite you're a troublemaker so, that's clear yeah, you're so a I troublemaker like, oh yeah. maybe i should investigate this a little <laughs> and so and simultaneously my gallerist monique deshanes who runs Yukonam gallery in san francisco who's also my friend, um, she was also getting kind of curious. And so we kind of decided, okay, let's like investigate this. And so we both got, you know, we got on Twitter and we spent a couple of months kind of observing and just barely participating and kind of trying to understand the landscape, right? I'd never even been on Twitter before. Um, and yeah, and so we did. And then during that time, I got we got connected up with the, the guys who run Quantum. And we were going to do a drop of my work just independently. And then we got connected with them and realized, oh, they have, you know, obviously they have this whole community and they're kind of like a buzz machine and they're doing a great job of that. And so that seemed like a, a great way to enter it without, given that I didn't have any kind of platform in that realm of my own, you know. So yeah, so that was all over a period of basically like last fall. And then I dropped a collection with Quantum. And what when did that drop occur? In mid-January. Mm -hmm. So, you know, six weeks ago. Five, okay. Right. It's a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful project. Speak a little bit about the project that you, you chose to, oh, yeah. to, to, um, to drop. Yeah. So the work that I that I first did there was based on a project that I had done throughout 2020 in the first year of the pandemic 
that had be started as kind of just like a way to make work and survive at home, right. when, you know, in the initial lockdown of the, of the right. pandemic with two kids at home in my apartment. And right. then it had grown and grown and become this large installation that was shown at SF MoMA in 2021. S SF MoMA. That's a pretty nice place to be showing your NFTs. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. That was the work. You were showing the work that became an the NFT. Work. This is before the uh, the, so, so our viewers know it's no feeling is final. That's yes. the name of the project. That's yeah. the name of the project. And it was what the installation was at SF MoMA was a two wall installation. One wall was a grid of 140, what I call fugitive ink photograms, which is my own technique, more or mm -hmm. less, but mm -hmm. it's really simple, right. <laughs> um, which is basically using watercolor inks these that I can paint onto paper really thickly, really vibrantly, and using that as its own emulsion because they're fugitive, they're not light safe. Like many, many art supplies are not light safe, right? right. But to varying degrees. And so they fade in the sun. And so what I what I was doing was I was coating this, you know, paper with these inks and then using handkerchiefs, vintage found handkerchiefs, used handkerchiefs as my negatives more or less. Right. Um, and exposing them to sunlight on the roof of my apartment. And the exposures mm. were anywhere from one week to five weeks mm. in their length. And so that so that was one wall, was a hundred, it was a grid of 140 of those. And then the other wall was an installation of the actual handkerchiefs that had been used. Oh as yeah, nice. And in order to block the light better, I had found that dyeing them black really helped because white fabric doesn't block light very well. So they were all dyed black, which then became this kind of almost ritualistic sort of morning ritual that I was mm. doing throughout the pandemic of dyeing them, hanging them all around my house to dry and then using them as the negatives. And then when they sit in the sun, they also fade. And so there are also these kind of imprinted patterns mm. on the handkerchiefs as well. So it mm. became this kind of this installation that was sort of like two wings or folds or pages of a book, it came out from the corner and was, you know, sort of the negative and positive. Um, one side really vibrantly colored and one side all in black right. sprays. And yeah, so basically for the NFT collection, we took those 140 images and minted each one as an individual right. NFT. Mm -hmm. So it also felt like a... Um, you know, it felt like the, even though I was like very skeptical about NFTs, right. it felt like the right transformation because those prints are fugitive. They continue to be fugitive. Mm -hmm. So they will fade and disappear eventually over time. And so mm -hmm. the idea of turning them into a digital image and then kind of dispersing them as a sort of, you know, collective preservation sort of made, made a lot of sense to me and felt like it fit the project. I love that sense of fitting the project. And I think um, as I looked uh, at that No Feeling is Final, uh, the evolution of No Feeling is Final, I didn't know about the rooftop. I didn't know the, your exact process for creating them. But as I saw how, for example, my, my response to seeing, and of course I didn't get, unfortunately, get to see your exhibition at the museum, but as I looked at the installation photographs, it felt like I'm a huge fan of blues music and it felt like a call and response like mm -hmm. you would or gospel or, in a, you know, that kind of a setting. It felt like the the dark, you know, it felt like the dark, the, the, the dark handkerchiefs were were able to transform somehow into these beautiful color images. There did, really did seem to be a so fitting 
in installation. And then I think your comment that, well, then the NFTs was a fitting way to have an archive, you know, mm-hmm. now that archive will be much like, it makes me think of the recent August Sander, uh, uh, 10K, um, yeah. ar- archive drop. Now those, those contact sheets are now out in the world, right? They have, and now, so let's talk it now. I happen to know that your, your, that your NFT drop did very, very well. And so, but let's, let's talk about that. What was that like? Tell me how you, how you did it. Just uh, the nitty gritty. How did it go? How did you get it? How did you get them created? And then how, how did, how did they, how did it do? Well, it was really different than just like listing NFTs independently right on foundation or something like that which now i'm experimenting with right we'll talk about that for sure but i just want to like for for listeners who are photographers getting into nfts to enter it via a platform like quantum that has a huge following already is a really different experience than to enter it on your own Mm. and i don't think i totally realized that until afterwards you know um because basically, you know, it's just such a small field right now. It's such a small field and there's such a big player in it that people buy whatever they say. And I, I'm not, that's not a diss to them. They're doing an amazing job, but their collectors are so loyal that like, I wouldn't, while I'm very proud of my own work as actual work, I wouldn't expect it to sell the way it did were I listing it independently. You know, that's partly because they have this discord there with this community and you like, you know, there's so much interaction with their collectors in the two weeks leading up to your drop and everything. So they really craft it that way, Um, which was great for me because it pushed me to participate. And I tend to be a little bit more of like a hang back and watch at first, Mm -hmm. but because I, there was an expectation of me promoting the work in advance of the drop, both on Twitter and in their Discord, which their Discords are really active. Their Discord community is really active. Um, so it really pushed me to like come up with a lot of how I wanted to talk about the work, behind the scenes footage, like ways to let people into the work that wasn't just about looking at the at the finished piece mm-hmm. as a digital image, you know? And I love documenting the process and the behind the scenes. That's part right. of like, you know, like I said, I ran this online arts magazine where I did that for other artists for years. And so now I do it for myself and it's actually become a really like joyful part of my practice. Um, so and you're, if I may, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you are really good at it. Your okay. video, your, your, your second drop that, which we'll talk about, which was done on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched the video for that and your story that you told, you should convert the video to an NFT. <laughs> it's really so good. You know, we, I think, I think artists and photographers uh, don't take advantage often enough of telling the backstory and people that collect or are interested in art are fast are really fascinated by the backstory. Yeah. yeah, and I think that video is a really good form for that too, because you can embed finished images in it, you can embed behind the scenes footage. You know, we all have iPhones in our pockets and they're essentially like video. I mean, they're such good video cameras. I shoot all that stuff just on my iPhone. And um, and then you can put your voice over it. And I'm a believer. I know some artists and some art collectors believe in like, oh, the artist shouldn't say anything. Like the viewer should, you know, it's all in the eye of the beholder. No, <laughs> I believe that like someone is going to shape the narrative about your work. So why not you? you oh, know? wow. 
Ooh, I'm going to write that on my bulletin board. That is such a great quote. So I like to put my thoughts, I like to frame it with my own kind of narrative. Um, so yeah, if people are interested in that work, the, the No Feeling is Final work, there's actually a 10 minute long, which is long, I know, in this world, but um, a 10 minute long kind of like artist video journal that I made about it that is on my website, if people wow. can see that. And that'll Fantastic. tell you the whole story of the technique and the process. And um, Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Where were we? Well, we were talking about um, we were talking about the process of uh, telling the backstory, what it was like to go with quantum, and we we're talking about moving, and we're going to move in a minute, uh, but about um, how it how that differs from releasing them on your own. Yeah. But before we move on from quantum, from your quantum experience, which was I know great, um, uh, tell me, uh, did you did you sell a couple of them on quantum? <laughs> yeah. yeah so, so their collections mine included tend to sell out like within minutes mm. and so yeah they mine sold out i think it was like 20 minutes or something um which was amazing the part of it that's the most special for me is that one of the main reasons i got into all of this as i said it was about trying to find like a sustainable way to augment my income which is primarily based on gallery sales, you know? But I have been a very long time big believer in resale royalties and the importance of resale royalties in for the arts. And as most people know, that it, with, the, with physical artwork, that is law in many, many countries, but not in the US. And yet for all other creative fields in the US, you know, musicians, writers, whatnot, even a lot of like graphic design and stuff that is visual, but that isn't fine art, that's built in. And it's not for fine art. And it's, to me, it's one of the reasons that the art world remains so elite and so not diverse is because as we mentioned before, if you don't have money already, like if you don't have family money or a trust fund or a wealthy spouse or something, then it is very hard to sustain yourself in this industry, especially if, you know, when you sell things, that's it. And then it's gone. And I particularly, again, this is something that when you're younger, you don't think about, but as I got, I've gotten older, I've noticed, you know, I'm a real workhorse. Like I work super hard and yet, you know, for anyone, you're, your production ebbs and flows. So there will be periods of your life where you can make tons of work and maybe you can sell it all and that's great, right? But then there will be periods, whether it's become a parent or illness or who knows what, or just the ebb and flow of creative energy, there will be periods where you can't produce that much work right. and we still need to be paying the bills. And so the fact that the wealth we generate belongs only to collectors and dealers and not to us is just, really not okay in my opinion and it is enforcing lack of diverse perspectives within the art world well, so, so, what sorry didn't go finish no, your go thoughts ahead. sorry no i was just going to say we had talked about this earlier and what's yeah. interesting to me is you were already i would even say an activist in this area about uh resale royalties for artists uh, say a little bit more about that you were doing that before nfts came came to your attention yeah so i i have been paying attention there's a handful of groups throughout the country that are actively working on trying to normalize this. Things like there's a group called, I think that it's just called the Artist Contract. It's um, these two women in LA who have taken 
this kind of historical contract from the 1970s, revised it for our time and, are make, and have made it available online so that artists can create their own customized contract without having to hire a lawyer, you know, and spend money doing that. And they're holding, they've, they, they also hold really great workshops to educate artists about this. So I've taken some of their workshops and been in some of their focus groups. And I've been working on creating my own contract for my needs. And so that's been a priority for a while. It's a real uphill battle um, with, with galleries and with collectors, but it's happening and I believe in it. And so when I heard that with the NFT format, resale royalties are already automatically built into it and they're self-executing. You don't have to go hunt down the collectors, you know, they just, it happens automatically whenever a sale occurs. That was a real um, point of interest for me. It's interesting that the, the omnipresence of that in the NFT uh, marketplace is probably going to have the effect to put a lot more pressure on galleries to do that as well, right? That's my hope. I mean, that's one of my big hopes is that by if, if artists who do have gallery representation and who are participating in the physical art world also start doing NFTs, then there will start to be this, this pressure that they'll bring back to the to the physical art world and say, you know, why, why is this not happening here? Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's my hope. And so, you know, the thing is in order for resale royalties to be meaningful, you have to have a certain volume of them. Right. And that can be slow to build. I got very lucky working with quantum initially to drop that collection because it means I have 140 pieces out on the market already that are now being re traded. And, um, and I just like, I feel very positive about the resale royalty experience and prospect and the way that that's being normalized and will hopefully become part of the expectation. So that's like a big, a big part of it for me. Yes. And it's not just about money. It's about no. respect for your work. And it's about recognizing that artists aren't machines who can just produce, 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 but that we need to be able to have ebbs and flows and still be supported during those times, you know? And to the reason I feel so passionate about this too is that my dad was a writer and he died when I was 19 and we didn't have much money. I didn't, you know, there was no like financial support for me as a young adult. However, I got his, I got half of his resale of his, not resale, sorry, but I got half of his royalties as a writer. And so there were many, many times throughout my twenties where, you know, you asked about how do you stick with the creative path, right? Well, I remember a hand, like a handful of specific times where I was kind of on a precipice of, oh, do I take on another third job or do I take out an extra shifts or am I able to do this creative project? And, you know, because I'm impressed for money and then a resale, a, a royalty check would arrive hmm. and they weren't big, but they were enough that it actually had an impact in the choices I could make. And enabled me in part to continue having a creative life and so i think about as an artist and a parent what am i able to pass on to my children there's not going to be a ton of wealth to pass on <laughs> but if i can pass something like that on that gives them wow. that freedom of choice like that's important you know wow because that ultimately down the line leads us to a more creative culture where we have more people choosing paths that they are passionate about rather than paths that they have to choose you know 
So well said. I mean, uh, it's just a, it, it's, uh, it is uh, so early in the game that, you know, no one can know how this will play out, but yeah. that's certainly something to be hoped for. And I think a lot of people like you and us and others who are not only curious, but engaging with it, um, that is a, if that outcome could be realized, it would be so great. You know, I, I, I've been, um, uh, obviously I've been in the, photography art world for a long time and it, it's just seems to be endemic and in, in it um that artists or people speaking on behalf of artists somehow want to apologize for their need and desire to make money i've never understood that you know investment bankers uh <laughs> uh lawyers uh, you know everybody thinks everybody else is just good they need money and we're yeah. happy they're making money but artists no you should starve for your art uh, that has not been a helpful meme for the art world. I agree completely. And I'm hearing it right now in some of the talk that's criticizing NFTs and is people being like, oh, you know, photographers saying things like, oh, well, you know, they're just here to make money. They're not here for the right reasons. Mm. And it, what are the right reasons? <laughs> the, for me, the right reason is to survive, support my family and be able to continue making art. And all those things require money. It's not like people are trying to like, it's not like individual photographers anyways are trying to like get rich quick. That's not what's happening. Maybe in the PFP realm that's happening, but not in this, not in the one of one photography realm, you know, we're right. just trying to like keep it flowing so that we can keep making. Yeah, totally. And have something to leave your children. Yeah. And hopefully have some cash flow to put them through college. Yeah, if college still exists. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a here's a quick question for you. I mean, I think we're all so new to this that you know, I'd I'd be I'd be a lousy a, uh, a lousy participant in this conversation if I didn't just ask you some practical questions. You sold out. You sold out that quantum drop. Mm -hmm. How? What's the resale like? How many have been sold, and uh, how's that going? A lot. <laughs> and I think again, that's partly because it's quantum and, you know, the way quantum mints them is they, you don't get to choose which piece you get. If you buy into a collection, you then randomly get a piece from that collection. And so then that means you don't necessarily get your favorite piece. And so then you have to kind of like trade around to try to get the piece you wanted, you know? Um, so that generates a lot more resale and and resale is good, right? Because every time you re you get, you get a, well, I should ask that question. You get a check when you get the sale. I mean, you get, you get, you get, you get a, you get remunerated when a sale occurs. I get and once, then you, yeah. Once a month I get a summary from them of how much has sold that month on resale and they take some of it and I get some of it and you get it as ETH. I mean, it's crypto. You're not getting it as like U.S. dollars, but um, yeah. And it. But if you wanted U.S. dollars, you could get U.S. Yeah. dollars. Yeah. Well, yeah. You just extract it. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. it's very doable. So um, yeah, it's 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 good that part of it. I mean, it's hard to tell. You know, that was only six weeks ago. I can't imagine that the resale activity is going to continue indefinitely at this rate. So, but I have you know, so far it's been encouraging. 
Six weeks in, thumbs up. <laughs> Time is so weird. Like, so it, is, it is. We're talking to you like you're the old salt of the sea, right? Uh, she's been out there for six weeks, folks. Uh, okay, so you've tried a new experiment with another beautiful project. I don't know. I've fallen in love with your with with all of your the both things that you you're doing. Um, the Hawaiian, uh, I, I don't, I can't remember the title. I have it here, but I just think of it as the Hawaiian big leaf project. Yes. How forests think, is that it, the name how of it? How forests think. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that project. And that's the video that I fell in love with. There's a wonderful video on your website that gives all of the backstory. And we won't do that here, but it, it's a project that grows out of your childhood in Hawaii. And mm -hmm um the photographs are amazing they are they're they're very different than the than yeah. the other work but say a little bit about how you chose or what you're experimenting with why you've had having obviously had great success with quantum you're doing something different with this one speak about that a little yeah um well for one just in terms of the choice of work i i wanted to choose work to do as nfts that had not been kind of overexposed in my actual art career. You know, there's some bodies of work I've made that have gotten a lot of play and others that haven't as much, not necessarily because of a lack of popularity, but more just because I like moved on quickly from them or I kind of never felt they didn't fit into a larger concept I was working on or something like that. So, the How Forests Think work, these color photograms, which is also a technique that is like, I mean, it's a simple technique, color photograms, chromogenic photograms, but it's like almost extinct because there's no long, no, color processing is like almost entirely gone. Um, and I made this work between like 2013, 2012 and 2015, kind of in that range. And I've shown it only a tiny bit. And yet I've always kind of, felt like close to my heart with that work. And then also I thought about, well, what works, you know, the translation, I'm a real hands-on maker and my work is super tactile. I don't use digital at all. Like it's all very analog and very, you know, textured even. A lot of the work my last, the last four years is mostly involving texture also. And so I thought, you know, those works won't represent very well on screen. Like what makes sense for this medium? But I find that color photograms, because they have this like electric kind of hypersaturated color in them already, and they tend to have black backgrounds, they work on screen in a way that like the work that you can see behind me is yes, beautiful. It, thank you. But it's like, it's so detailed. It's so much about texture. It's nuanced. It's really hard to perceive in a JPEG, you know? And so I chose work that kind of made sense for that. And yeah, that work came out of, um, or was in response to kind of my early childhood growing up in Hawaii on the volcano. We lived off the grid with no electricity. And so, which is, I've always attributed part of why I have such comfort in darkness and dark rooms and all that is, and working outdoors at night, which a lot of my work requires, is because I grew up partly without light. <laughs> um, yeah, and they're giant, they're, they're, you know, photograms of these giant banana leaves and traveler palms that are sort of the size of a human figure. And so they're really, um, I think of them as kind of like beings or sentinels of the landscape. Um, 
and they kind of reflect a larger belief I have about the landscape being animate and kind of this sort of personification of landscape, which, you know, happens in many, many different indigenous cultures, but it also just happens in some people's personal experience of the landscape. And for me, that was kind of how I was raised and, and I like finding a way to picture it and also finding a way to highlight the patterns and the flaws in all those subjects, you know, and, and that technique gives this look where things appear to be kind of glowing from within and so it works well for that. I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, you're answering it perfectly. And again, you pointed to something I think it's really important is this this was a project that would make uh, would be fitting for an NFT release, right? Yeah. Say more about that, how you thought, well, okay, NFTs would be the way to go uh, with this project. Well, I mean, kind of what I said, number one, like it hadn't been overexposed already. Overexposed meaning like it hadn't been seen that much already, this work. and and it hadn't been collected that much because I hadn't shown it much. And then also I think I think it actually looks better on screen than a lot of work does of mine. And mm -hmm. so I don't want to put, like you know, just like in real life, <laughs> I don't want to put something out there that I can't feel totally proud of, you know? So I had to choose something that I felt would work. It's kind of simple work visually compared to a lot of my work is really visually chaotic and also kind of more conceptually complicated. And I think those leaves have a kind of archetypal symbolic quality that a lot of people can connect with. And, you know, the reality is like the audience for NFTs is not an art world audience. And so there's a different kind of work that they connect with. I might be wrong and I might be estimating that wrong. And so far they're very much invested in like documentary street photography. That seems to be the primary interest field. But I did think about like, okay, I think this is work that people can kind of just connect with on a um, kind of experiential level without a whole lot of like theory or concept, you know? And so I felt like that was fitting for that kind of audience. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, this, uh, the, and I, having seen the, these images, they do just uh, uh, speak for themselves and you yeah. can just relate to them in terms of color or form. It also, those are images that I would like to have the print. And I think that's an interesting thing that goes on too in the NFT world. Um, as you think about NFTs, um, how do you think about, uh, what, are you, what are you doing with your NFTs? Do they qualify someone for a print or not? Have, what did you think about having a, how did you do it? And what do you think about I, Yeah, for this collection, which is very small and limited because there just aren't that many, this is a small body of work. Um, I'm not doing some big, like I didn't do this as like a drop where there's like build up to a moment and gamification, meaning like if you buy this, then you get this. And if you have two of these, you get that. You know, there's a lot of that going on. This one, I kind of thought, can, I, it was an experiment. I was like, can I take the momentum caused by the drop with quantum and kind of just gradually low profile, add some pieces here and there to this collection and see if people are interested. And so, yeah, there's no, there's no extras. Um, that said, I'm absolutely, I, I love the idea of a collector wanting to have both the NFT and the piece. And 
actually someone just bought one of them and then emailed me and I need to respond to him today about wanting a physical piece. So, and I would certainly be happy to give him a discount on a physical piece. So, you know, but I think I'll just work that out on a kind of one-on-one basis. One-on-one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, uh, Clea too, that, um, there are a lot of people that the idea of having a print just makes no sense to them. They just want the NFT that are, that are real collectors. And, um, I think we'll, we'll see over the coming year in the coming years. Um, and there's some conversations I've had and, um, that photography lends itself to not being on a print. We, we kind of got stuck with having prints because photography was trying to be like painting. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and there was no other way to see a photograph of daguerreotypes. You know, there was no other way to see it, you know, period, unless you had the case in your hand and could hold the object in your hand. So the, but, but photography is a medium that lends itself very, very, Uh, fluently to a non-objective space. It does. And I think that that's why so far the photography world is embracing NFTs much more quickly than the rest of the art world is. Like I feel a lot more openness to it in the photo realm. I've always tried to exist more in the art world and not just in the photo world. And now I'm kind of like going back into the photo world with the NFT thing. And it's interesting, but um I think you're right overall. I think particularly for actual like representational photography that's shot on a camera or whatever, it absolutely lends itself to that. My work in general really doesn't because most of it really is an object, you know? And so I'm trying to figure out, can I simultaneously have kind of two rivers of creative production? One that leans into the hands-on objectness that I love to work with and one that leans into something that works on screen. And that's when people talk about like NFTs are a new medium, which I think, sorry, I'm interrupting myself, but I think that NFTs are two, there are two things. They can be a new medium, but they also can just be a new channel of distribution. And every artist can, you know, choose how to use them. So far, photographers are mostly using that, using it as a new channel of distribution because they're minting work that they've already made as a photo, and now they're making it as an NFT. What I'm actually really interested in is to see how it affects the work that's made moving forward when people are making it, knowing that that's the the format, you know? And for me already, I'm finding it kind of liberating because there are certain things I've wanted to do in my work, but that I've been like, like for instance, I hate digital prints. I've just never, I've never gotten super good at them. I don't really like them very often when other people make them. I sometimes like the photo, but I'm distracted by the like digital printness of it. And so suddenly now I'm thinking, oh, there's ideas I had that would have had to be digital prints because they're not like on analog photo paper. And yet now I could make them and never have to make a print of them because they could just exist as a digital image. And that's actually really liberating if it changes what I can make, you know? So I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but I'm, I'm kind of curious. I think that's like one of the next phases that we're going to see. I get, no, I, I think you did explain it well. I get what you're saying that um, a liberation from having to have a physical object. Um, and there's a lot of technology being developed now about frames and ways of displaying your NFTs. Right. And so mm-hmm. we, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing 
that that technology is going to be really rapidly developed and put out in the world and continue like my, I remember watching, sitting there watching TV, uh, my little mom and dad's black and white Magnavox TV and watching TV and, and, you know, it's black and white and TV shuts down at 11 and there are three channels and, and, and just like, yeah, yeah. And I remember when we, when my family had enough money to buy a bigger Sony TV and that was so great. And, you know, but I think the same thing is going to happen with all the display technologies that make NFTs that live and dance and jump in ways that we can't, that photography has never known before. Yeah. So, so we were just talking about all the possibilities that are there that could unfold that are still uncertain, but that we're hoping for, right. As we lean into it. So what are some of the anxieties and, or, and even struggles or negative things that are either coming up for you or your concern may come up for you. Speak about that a little. Yeah. I mean, I think they come in a few different categories. I think there's three categories of like worries, (laughs) about this that I have. One is like public perception, right? There is a risk of alienating, you know, because I I do have like an art world career of some sort, I don't want to alienate curators or collectors or whatnot, that audience too much. And I've noticed that a lot of the bigger name photographers who are getting involved with NFTs are not actually participating they're like letting like fellowship, for instance, fellowship trust, which is doing amazing work in the NFT space and did the August Sander drop. They're working with a lot of really well-known photographers, but those photographers aren't even on Twitter. Like they're not promoting it themselves at all. It's like fellowship takes their images and they do it. Right. And their name carries enough weight that that will sell the work on its own. But I follow a lot of those photographers also on Instagram and whatnot, and I know some of them in person, and they're not talking about it outside of that. Like, they're not promoting it on Instagram or saying they're participating in this. And I'm just interested, like, okay, that's that's definitely strategic, you know, and, and that must, I mean, I'm assuming that must have to do with not wanting to alienate right. the world audience. So that's one issue, of course. Another issue is just like, you know, there's so much energy in the NFT space right now, but I worry that it's a lot smaller than we realize. And I could be totally wrong. I do not, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert on any of this, but I just notice when I see work, you know, cause a lot of times photographers will repost like, oh, so-and-so just bought this piece of mine. It's always like the same guys buying it, like mm-hmm. or the same collectors. And I, and I just worry like, is the scene a lot smaller than we realize and how much like depth in that pool is there really? Right, you know? right for it to have legs and have longevity and really turn into something that said, hopefully new people are joining it and whatnot. Yeah. And then the other thing really isn't an anxiety. It's just a challenge, which is the thing I mentioned about like, can I have these multiple streams of work simultaneously? And does that splinter my creative mind too much, you know, because also like, I have a million other side projects. I'm also working on a book right now. I have two kids at home. Like it is hard to stay clear and focused already. And then when I come to work and I'm like, I have to do Twitter also. And I have to think about work in a digital format as well as in a physical format. I'm feeling a little splintered right now. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that I like learn to manage that better. Cause right now it still feels like messy and like I'm, I can get focused on one path, but it's really hard for me to do all of them simultaneously and do a good job at all of them, you know? 
So it's that's just kind of a, my own mind needs to adapt to this this environment. I think that feeling of being splintered that you describe um, makes um, uh, really resonates with me as well. Um, I'm a book publisher and a photographer as well, and taking on this new round of documentum examining this has required me. I haven't even dipped my toe into Discord yet. I don't know what that's going to be like, but I'm eager to get in there. But just returning to, tw to returning to Twitter at Patient Letters, the Substack uh, newsletter I write, I, my last um, essay that I published was about the experience of be becoming Documentum Volume 1 was all about, well, what is Instagram doing to our medium? You know, and we did that with Stephen Shore, and um, we, I, I'm not sure if we've exhausted that examination yet, but we, after two issues of that, we let it go, and then uh, I peddled over, when, and then when, when this all broke out, I thought, well, this would be a perfect um, new tech, new development in, um, in, in photography to be examining, and we chose to do it with a with um podcast and a youtube um conversation but i'm right there with you i feel your splinteredness um and I, that is a comment i hear from uh, a number of photographers who are either curious about it or they think oh my god it's a whole nother marketing campaign that i've got to run you know yeah and i think what's different about it too is that like if you if you've gotten to the point in your in your career where you do have you know, gallery representation and whatnot, you've handed over some degree of that, like running the business side of your practice to your gallery. And that's, you know, people criticize the gallery system a lot and there's a lot to criticize. However, I don't want to sell my own artwork. I want to make art, you know, and I love that people email me about things and I can just be like, I'm forwarding this to my gallery. <laughs> that's amazing. Right, right. Off responsibility for things. Yeah. Right. And so, but the NFT market requires, unless you're really well known already, the NFT market really requires a lot of participation, really a lot. And it can't be a third party doing it, you know, that, that right. they, there's this ethos about community and whatnot that requires you to actually show up and right. put in the kind of like virtual FaceTime of it, you know. And so that's a question I have of like, is that sustainable for me? I'm not sure. All right. Well said. Uh, also coming up inside of what you're talking about is the question of the splintered or some of the thing, the shaky, some of the shaky parts of this new uh, endeavor. Um, also coming up inside of that is something we talked about the other day, which I was intrigued with is uh, you were pointing to it when you said, well, I'm beginning to think about old projects that I couldn't really envision as an inkjet, but maybe it could work as an NFT. Do you find that this new undertaking has uh, is opening up voices, uh, new voices that might be there in your work that haven't emerged before, yeah. or just how how is this beginning? Because I think that's a really interesting part of this moment. Uh, it was there with Instagram. It's there with every time there's a new possibility technologically with with photography you you kind of have to say well that's not for me or that's not for me now well, okay i'll dip my toe in and then there begins this i love the philosopher alan watts he said life is a do happening something happens and you do something you do something and something happens yeah. right and mm -hmm. so there's a do happening going on right now with nft and photography and you're experiencing it firsthand so what's that do happening for you yeah it's definitely opening up different creative ideas for me. I mean, I think, 
you know, my work, like, okay, I'm going to tilt the camera. You can see this is, I'm in my studio. Mm -hmm. My yeah. work is barely photography already. Right. We were talking about Marilyn Minter the other day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it's very photographic and I'm very, like, I spend a ton of time in the darkroom. I'm very invested in the technique and all of that. But when you actually look at it, you're like, what is this? It doesn't register as as photography to, to a lot of people. And I now paint on my photographs a lot. That's what the color comes from. It comes from fabric dye that I apply on the photograms. So it's already kind of like, Steering in this direction. And then I think the idea of being able to make things where the physicality of the object is kind of without physical limitations is taking me in a direction that was already happening in my mind that's more almost about like collage. And the, the source of all that material will still be my own photograms or photographs, but kind of an ability to recombine things. So rather than like building up from nothing, it's about like taking things from my own kind of archive and mind and images and recombining them in new ways that weren't really available or they were available as a physical form, but I didn't like the way they worked out as a physical form. And I kind of digital work allows for a different way to do that. So that's, that's like one of the, one of the paths that's opening up in my mind. What has been your experience connecting to a whole new group and really class and kind of collector base? Are some of your traditional art collectors coming to the NFTs? Are you meeting a whole new crowd of people? What's that? How does that connection happen if it happens at all? And how does that compare to what you're used to with patrons and collectors? Yeah. Um, in my experience so far, it is not traditional collectors coming to the NFT space yet. It is a new kind of collector. And it's just such a different culture. It's like culture shock existing in both the art world and the NFT space, like, and going back and forth. Because, you know, the art world has such a surplus of criticality and kind of prides itself on that and the, the feelings of scarcity and of, and I love some of those things. I mean, I don't love scarcity, but I love, I love discussing artwork. I love really getting into it. You know, I love critique mm -hmm. and the NFT realm does not have that yet. It is very, it is, you know, hyper, hyper positive. Right. And it's just, it's like a cultural difference. It's like going from right. like, I don't know, you know, Germany to India or something. It's right. like, Right. Totally different vibe. <laughs> right. A totally different vibe. <laughs> okay. I mean, statement of the year. <laughs> yeah. And so that part is interesting. Um, in terms of the actual collectors, well, to go back to that, that part of it being a different culture is simultaneously like when I'm in the NFT space, there's something about it that's refreshing. Yes. If I let my if I let myself yes. be a snob, yes. if I try yes. not be a snob, then right. this is kind of refreshing. Everyone it is. It is. So enthusiastic, you know? Yes, it is. It's like being back in high school or something, you know? Exactly. It's so great. And it's lovely to see people so excited about yeah. art, you know? Art, yeah. At the same time, you know, the term toxic positivity have, has been thrown around, and I think right. it's pretty accurate. Yeah. The overuse of certain words like legendary and you know um revolutionary like right. Right. no like there's right. just way too much um right. hyperbole about Boost, booster yeah boosterism yeah. yeah and i know it's like we're all trying to support each other but 
what I kind of want to seed in there is constructive critical feedback is a form of support. You know, it's not, support doesn't always just mean saying everything's amazing. In fact, it does more of a service to an artist to really spend time with their work and say something that is, you know, maybe somewhat critical, but not critical in an attacking way, but critical in a way of kind of like, here's a direction you could try, or have you looked at this artist? you know, you could push it in this way. Like, right. that's, that's support. Right. And so I hope that as more artists from the, like, like working artists who have an ongoing practice join the NFT realm, that maybe that will begin happening more. Yeah. There is a lot of discussion happening. You know, I love Twitter spaces. I love sitting in on all these conversations. But I wouldn't say that there's much, like, critical discussion happening. But then with the actual collectors... Yeah, there's an expectation of engagement for sure. That's kind of what Discord's all about. And at least with Quantum's Discord, there was like a lot, like a lot of direct questions from collectors about pieces, about process. Tell me how this works. How did you do that? Tell me about this image. Right. And um, and it felt organic and chatty and friendly. And I enjoyed it, actually. I mean, it was more than I, I couldn't do that much all the time, but I, I enjoyed that. You know, in the in my other art world life, there is engagement with collectors, but it's not with every single collector of one piece. It's more like if someone collects a bunch of my work or has an ongoing collector relationship, then I get to know them socially. You know. So we were you were talking about how the the care that you see other artists using to be careful that they're not putting it in their name that others are releasing it. And so there's concern. I know I've expressed it and I've heard others express it about, well, there's still a lot of naysaying out there and a lot of concerns about it. Have you gotten any pushback or any negativity from other, from other sources? And if so, what's it been like and where's it coming from? Yeah, I've gotten it mostly from other art fellow artists. Um, At the same time, like, I don't know what people are thinking. Like, largely I've gotten it in the form of silence (laughs) and lack of engagement, you know, really in my own community, actually, like socially almost, you know, where I just, people just don't want to hear about it and don't ask me about what I'm doing because they know that's what I'm doing kind of thing. Right, right. Or seem kind of like pointedly uninterested. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also gotten you know, some pushback on, on Instagram and whatnot, which I haven't posted a lot about it, but a little bit. And I felt like, I feel like there's these kind of waves of like collective narratives. At first it was like the art artists were like concerned about the environmental issues. I'm concerned about the environmental issues. However, there's like the data and the things that people are quoting is so not legitimate data. And they're really, what we need is we need a, some third party that doesn't have an agenda to just actually provide like real clear data on this. Because I've heard outlandish things on both sides of that argument in terms of how much energy use is happening for which which chain, which blockchain and whatnot, and what it's comparable to in terms of our other things we do in our daily lives, you know? So I feel like my hope is that that's evolving and improving, but the jury's kind of still out on it. Now I feel like there's this larger narrative happening in the media about like the criminality of crypto and therefore NFTs are part of that. 
I'm not bothered by that. I mean, I, I come from the underworld. <laughs> like, <laughs> You're an original gangster. I get yeah, it. I grew up in the underworld and the black market and all of that. And like, there's going to be people who use things in illegal and ethically questionable ways in every field, you know, that's human nature. And so it's going to exhibit itself everywhere kind of. But yeah, I guess I guess maybe the way I've gotten the kind of pushback most is a feeling of kind of alienation from some of my peers. At the same time, every day I get emails from peers saying, hey, I finally think I need to tune into NFTs. Can you help me? Like, can you point me to some resources? How are you doing it? So it's like a simultaneous, there's people kind of, there's others people now looking to me as like someone who got in there early, you know? So who knows where that'll lead? Yeah. So the, what do you, I mean, none of us know, right? We didn't know three months ago what NFT land would look like in, in February you know, we can't project through, but if you had to try to crystal ball this, where do you think it might go over the next year to three years? Yeah, I, I have no idea. I am not good at predictions ever. Um, I can tell you what my hope is, which is in my most, when I allow myself to be my most like idealistic version of myself, I hope that like 50 years from now, when, people look back at this moment in art history, that maybe this NFT wave will be seen as a kind of seed of a labor movement within the arts. That's the part that I care about, is like artists taking ownership of their intellectual property, resale royalties, being paid more sustainably, not always having to work through gatekeepers, you know, those kinds of things are, I think, like the lasting impact. Um, that I hope for. In terms of the actual market and what it'll do and whether it will be meaningful or not, I have no idea. Wow. What a great uh, way to end our conversation. Um, I think you you are the spirit that if it does happen, will bring it into being. Um, Kim Beale said that she was told as she was thinking about it, uh, she was in conversation with Alejandro Cartagena Cartagena. And he said, well, if you don't see what you would like to see there, then it's up to you to put it there. Yeah. And I think that's the spirit that you're coming from. And I think that's the spirit that uh, if this does become something that we'll look back 50 years from now and say that was the beginning of a sort of an art labor or an art equity movement mm-hmm. uh, where artists can benefit from resales and royalties. I think um, that would be a great legacy for all of this. Yeah, Totally. Well, I just got to say, you know, I had high expectations for our conversation and you so exceeded them in your generosity. And uh, I learned so much from our conversation and I'm so grateful uh, to know you and to have your art in the world and the many ways that you put it out there. And I just want to thank you for for sharing all of this with with us. Thank you. Thanks for the platform and thanks for creating conversations. That's, I mean, that's what we need, right? In terms of the criticality question, we need more real conversations, not just sound bites. So agree with you. And I, and um, I look forward to seeing your, your work going forward. And um, thank you very, very much, Clea. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks everybody. That's a wrap. 
Uh, thank you, Clea, for being with us, and thank you for tuning in to listen to Clea's uh, journey uh, into uh, sharing her work with NFTs. We have learned a lot here today, and uh, we have other resources available for you. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to at uh, Fall Line Press and at uh, Documentum TV. If you would like an even deeper dive, I write a, uh, a series of uh, newsletter uh, essays about what's happening in photography, including in uh, photography and technology at patientletters.substack and also a Twitter account by the same name, Patient Letters. And I would love to see you there. And I really appreciate you tuning in today and I'll see you on the other side.